Hello and welcome to The Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Monday, June 22nd here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe as the fight against the coronavirus pandemic continues. Coming up today on the podcast is what I hope will be a really good one. I'm really excited about it. I had the pleasure of being joined earlier today by the phone with Lane Higgins, who is a Wall Street Journal sports reporter who is covering all things college football and has been writing and reporting extensively on the issues that the sport is facing on their return, what they're doing to forge ahead for a season this fall. And I was so excited she was able to take the time to join me and talk to me about some of these issues. So I'm really excited about that and, and hope you guys all enjoy. And this the the second part of the podcast kind of ties in with my recommendation corner for this week's episode. I was joined for the second part of the podcast by my younger brother uh, to talk about The King of Staten Island, which is Judd Apatow's new movie with Pete Davidson. It, unfortunately, due to the pandemic, got pulled from movie theaters, as obviously movie theaters are not widely open, and is now available on demand and on various streaming platforms. We streamed it and rented it over this past weekend. We really enjoyed it, so I had my brother on to break it down. I highly recommend everyone checking it out, especially if you like some of Judd Apatow's past movies like Knocked Up, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Superbad, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. It's train wreck movies like that, that that he has done. Pete Davidson is really funny. It's a more serious movie than a lot of the other ones that Judd Apatow has, has done in the past, but it's really good, has some great moments, and uh, that's my recommendation for this week. I'm going to hit the music, and when we come back is my interview from earlier today with The Wall Street Journal's Lane Higgins. Joining me today on the podcast is a special guest, Lane Higgins, who is a college football reporter for the Wall Street Journal. She's been covering the return of college football and writing extensively on the topic, and I'm thrilled she's able to take the time to join me today. Lane, how's it going? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So kind of let's just get right into it. College football has not been immune to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic but they have decided to, to press on and do everything they can to have a season this fall. Almost every college football program has been back since June 1st when the NCAA announced voluntary workouts could begin. I guess just to start here, schools have announced various safety in- initiatives, be it testing protocols, screening, disinfecting, etc. So who is creating these policies and kind of how are they being enforced? Yeah, so it's a pretty... Wild West type environment across college sports around testing and healthcare policies, and that there, although the NCAA is the central governing body, and they created a list of recommendations that were weighed in on by Brian Hingline, who is the chief medical officer, and some doctors at Emory who were part of the task force that the NCAA called upon that ultimately shut down March Madness. So there's a set of guidelines floating around from the NCAA, but they're not mandatory to enforce. So most of these universities are making the decisions based on internal task forces they have. Um, so, you know, there's some big research institutions that have med schools attached to the campus. Like University of South Carolina has a, um, I think they've been, they're using their medical school, I think, in this policy setting both for the university but also for the state. Gotcha. And also because... There's universities in all 50 states in the NCAA. The regulations vary by state as well. So there's kind of this descending hierarchy where it starts with, you know, whatever the president and the chancellor of the university agrees is the right thing to do based on input from a task force. But then they still defer to the board of trustees and they all defer to the local governors or the local um, mayors. And then that goes up to the state level or possibly the federal level. So it's kind of crazy. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. And so we've also seen in this effort to return to the, to, to the field, some schools are having their players sign waivers, uh, s- sometimes called pledges, acknowledging the risk in returning, Ohio State being uh, one of the most prominent for their Buckeye pledge. It seems kind of inherently contradictory to say that on one hand, that it's safe for the players to come back because of all the protocols, 
And on the other hand, we need you to sign this waiver. We have also seen in, in the last week college football players using their voices and platforms like like they've never had before. Are you hearing or seeing players attempting to, to push back on some of these virus-related issues? A little bit. Um, there's been an instance of that at UCLA where mm-hmm. about 30 players got together and they had uh, documents they released basically saying, we would like a third-party person at our workouts to help enforce you know, public health guidelines just because we don't trust the university to do it to the best of their ability. And I think they that was pretty roundly criticized and the players have since kind of walked back some of their criticism. But oh, interesting. I think the reason why you're seeing the schools have these pledges is twofold. First is there's a huge liability issue in that the United States is one of the most litigious societies in the, in the world. So uh-huh. if a player sets his toe, in theory, you could bring a lawsuit. Who knows what sort of damages you would get, but it's very much more serious when it comes to a life-threatening illness especially because a lot of the players in college football, they may be healthy 18 to 23-year-olds, but maybe they have family members that aren't. And if the player gets an asymptomatic case, brings it home, there's a death, that could very easily turn into an ugly situation for a university. And I think the second reason why you're seeing these pledges is that the schools want some sort of accountability for the athletes. Um, I don't think there's been any cases of the university revoking scholarships if you don't comply with social distance guidelines or if you do come down with the case but you know it doesn't take much for the situation to quickly spiral I mean you look at what happened at Kansas State they had two players and then some players were tested on Friday they didn't wait for their results and went to a party and then all of a sudden there's 14 players testing positive the following week and you shut down practice yeah so I think there's sort of this desire from athletic directors and coaches and officials to have the athletes feel like they have a stake in it so that way they understand the risk because it really only takes, you know, one person exposing the team to potentially derail the entire season. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's definitely been one of the things a lot of people have talked about, which is how do you prevent college kids from being college kids, you know? Yeah, it's certainly a tough order because, I, I mean, college kids seem to be wired to just not listen to authority <laughs> sometimes and want to go out and do their friends because, you know, mm-hmm. like all of us, They've been sheltering in place at home, and they are very eager to go see people that they usually would have spent their entire spring with. For sure. And so since uh, these schools have been able to come back and have these voluntary workouts, uh, there have been my count, and I updated this this past weekend, 26 Division One schools that have reported positive uh, COVID tests within their uh, programs. And now, while some of these positive tests may not have been surprising, you know, more tests hopefully will lead to more positives, right? Two prominent schools, one that you mentioned, Kansas State and Houston, announced that they were suspending workouts as they deal with outbreaks on their respective teams. As we are seeing these positive tests and outbreaks, particularly in the South and the Southeast, are people growing concerned that if if they're running into so many issues with voluntary workouts when the college campuses are essentially vacant of regular students, that it kind of puts the the fall season in in jeopardy? You know, that's a great question because I think the common sense, you know, 10,000 votes view answer is yes, you would have some second thought. But I think with anything, we're learning as we go with this virus. I mean, you look at in the beginning when it seemed like the only thing we needed was to focus on getting ventilators. And now that's yeah. obviously more of a secondary concern. Like, it's a moving target. And I think that in a way, these college kids are unfortunately being used as guinea pigs to test out the testing for the policies and health protocols. And some of these universities may say, all right, well, this is a contained population that are younger, healthy. Maybe it's worth the risk because we can figure out how to do this on a smaller scale with athletes and then scale that up when everyone comes back. And maybe we'll be in a different place with the virus and treatments, therapies, et cetera, in August. I mean, the thing is, it's hard to say whether we really will be, though. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of these colleges, it is giving them pause. And you look at Houston, part of the reason why they shut down their practices was because the outbreak wasn't concentrated on one team. It was yeah. across many, many teams. So that makes sense to me in that you want to stop it before all of a sudden it's every single student athlete you've allowed back. And, you know, maybe this just means that we have a wave of cases at the beginning that serves as a wake-up call for some of these kids and behavior changes. But... 
if anything, I think it just goes to show how difficult it is in practice to enforce the bubble that so many of these sports leagues are talking about, and also just how impractical that is for colleges. So I think if we're going to have a world where college students are back on campus and college sports are around, there's going to be the baseline risk tolerance is going to have to be a little bit higher and that you're going to have to be willing to have students come down with cases because I think if this last week and a half is showing anything, it's showing that they will. And I guess on, on the flip side then, you know, as, as we talked about and kind of what all the top doctors are saying, which is that young, super healthy, active people like these college football players are not at risk for some of the most serious consequences of a positive coronavirus test, but a lot of their coaches and support staff members within the programs can be older, can have uh, health okay. complications that aren't known about. Are there any pushback from uh, the the coaches at at a lot of these schools, uh, and you know wh- whether they don't feel comfortable coming back and coaching, but but are are coaches using their voices to kind of push back and try to get? Uh, enhanced safety protocols or or anything like that? You know, it's because I don't think many coaches have come out and said, no, I don't want to do it. Um, I think if there are coaches that are hesitant, they're mostly staying quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you notice, of all of the universities that are reporting their cases, I think there's been a handful of athletic department staffers and one or two graduate assistants that have had cases, but they haven't disclosed anything about assistants or head coaches having cases. So maybe there's just some different social distancing or health protocols going on there. I don't know. Um, But I think that, yeah, there's definitely reason for concern. And, you know, getting back to the athletes, we don't think it affects them, but we don't really know because we don't have, you know, a long-term look at how this affects the respiratory system and how it affects your cardiovascular system. So I think that we're kind of just, gambling a little bit and saying that, oh, it's just like a cold, you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Because no one in the world knows because this virus is a new thing. Very true. Very true. And you wrote a really interesting piece at the end of May with Melissa Korn, another reporter at the Wall Street Journal, where the president of Michigan stated that, quote, if there was no on-campus instruction, then there won't be intercollegiate athletics, at least for Michigan, end quote. Mm-hmm. And that and that kind of fits to what you were saying. I think it was the Washington Post uh, recently talked about, and it was Michigan again. Just, just the idea of putting college athletes in this bubble type environment isn't realistic because you're then separating them further from the, the the traditional college students at these universities. Are there ongoing discussions in different conferences, I guess, about the possibility that some of their member schools may not be participating in football this fall, or or in the event that something happens this fall, that they may have to adjust? I think that's something that is still very up in the air. Um, Early on, I think in late May, you were hearing some conferences say, well, if we get 11 out of the 12 schools that can play football, maybe we'd proceed. Um, I think America, uh, oh, America East or AAC, sorry, (laughs) AAC Commissioner Mike Oresko, he was the one that was really pushing that and saying, if we get, you know, just the critical mass, we'll do it. I don't think that many of the other leaks have come out one way or the other strongly. I know the Pac-12 said, you know, it's an all-or-nothing situation, Mm -hmm. but it's hard to say because I think it's becoming more clear that maybe if there's outbreaks and you have to move a game because all of a sudden half your team is quarantined, that maybe this football season is going to have to be really flexible, and it's not necessarily that you wouldn't play the whole season, but maybe there's a different amount of games that each team plays based on their health and I just don't think that we really have answers on that yet. And I, if you listen to the tone of what officials are saying, it's mm-hmm. very much open-ended. Very, yeah, it's very, very open-ended. And, and that kind of brings me to my next question. And, and this is something that uh, my dad and I have talked about a lot uh, just over dinner and just and just when we're talking. Mm-hmm. We're both college – my dad played college basketball. I'm, I'm a college basketball player. Mm-hmm. When – we're thinking about, okay, if there's a season in games, obviously each school is going to have safety protocols in place. Mm-hmm. And currently each school has different safety protocols for these voluntary workouts, as, as you kind of talked about. And you've written about some schools test everyone on return. Some only test, asympt- uh, some only test symptomatic. Some only give mm-hmm. antibody tests. What can we expect if there is a season this fall in terms of testing uh, protocols before games to kind of make sure that a 
that the requirements for player participation in a game is standard across the board so that if two teams are playing, you know, the the star quarterback at one school is slightly above the temperature requirement and then they, they have to miss the game, for instance, as, as that's a kind of an example we've talked about. But like, are, are, yeah. are they talking about some type of uniformity in terms of testing or safety protocols for the eventual season? You know, that's something that I think is still being worked out because you identify a really important point because if a, a key player on a team has symptoms or is asymptomatic and, you know, in theory could play the game by every other health standard, there's an onus on the university and maybe a little bit of a pressure not to report it because, you know, what if that drastically affects your chances of winning? Yeah. And what if this is a game that, you know, is really important? And I think that there are currently no standards for when to disclose, when to test players, how that's going to work, especially as they're traveling across state lines for some of these games. And I think there's been some calls from, you know, leadership across college sports to have the NCAA kind of put in a testing regime. But I think it's going to just be incredibly variable. And you would hope that universities are honest about it and they don't hide tests. But I personally am not that optimistic just based on how they're reporting the outbreaks they're having now and that so many universities have said we're not even going to say how many cases we have mm-hmm. and I and you know I understand the want to respect privacy but at the same time you know this is a public health issue and you could potentially if one university is not disclosing it maybe they say it in private to the other university and maybe they don't do it publicly I don't know but I do think that there needs to be more openness around this I definitely agree with you that that more openness is better. And and we saw that with the NBA kind of once the NBA was super open about who had tested positive, it just kind of helped with the general awareness about the virus. And also because those athletes are so uh, in the or so much in the public eye that they come in contact with so many people that it probably helped people take it seriously and maybe get more tests. And that kind of brings me to to my next question, as, as we saw this weekend Clemson and LSU have now had two of the biggest uh, outbreaks. I think Clemson now has 30 uh, players in quarantine. Clemson announced 23 uh, positive tests. When when you look at that, are obviously those are drastic, drastic numbers. Does that kind of make every like other schools who may not have 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 started yet? kind of hesitate or pause or adjust their their protocols seeing the success and failures of of some of the other schools because because obviously the people who go first are more of like the guinea pig t- testing out that i'm thinking of a school like oklahoma who's who's decided to wait <laughs> i would certainly hope that universities are looking around and taking notes um because you know everything is kind of already in motion in a lot of places and there's a lot of resources involved in testing and maybe what we're finding from these mini outbreaks at Clemson and LSU is that you need to be testing athletes more often. I mean, at LSU, they were only doing antibody tests. Mm -hmm. And I think that it became very clear that maybe that isn't the most tenable strategy. And, you know, we don't know if testing athletes every day, every week is going to be better, but it's also a lot more expensive to do that than just do one antibody test. Um, So I think that there is some, I mean, I I think there is still some inertia when it comes to how much this is going to change testing policy, just because you don't know if the university has the resources because this is a time when there's already a ton of financial uncertainty in the college model. Yeah, that that's a great point. And every school is having concerns about money. And I think there's been a lot of reports about just how expensive it is to test all the, uh, just at least all the members of the football program, it's like at least when, when people talk about for consistent testing, at least $500,000 just for the football uh, players, not including the basketball and baseball and all the other sports that, that these schools are involved in. And, and, you know, my last question here, uh, Lane, as, and as I appreciate you spending so much time with me this afternoon is this, you know, there's major, major financial incentives to play college sports. I think everyone is aware of that. And especially major college football, you know, they have these billion dollar television deals, uh, so why not flip the football schedule to the spring and play the season then? You can do full training camp and ramp up in February. So many of these teams have indoor facilities that the weather isn't that much of a concern for practices. And then you could start the season in mid-March 
and run it through the end of June and, you know, theoretically have the national championship game, you know, Father's Day in June. Why is there so much pressure to play the season this fall? And is there any talk about playing the season in the spring? Well, I think you bring up a billion-dollar TV deals, and that's one of them, and that those TV schedules for events are determined years in advance. Mm -hmm. And if you have all of the programming of college football, assuming the rest of the sports are back to normal, which is, you know, another huge question mark, but assuming that you have college football games going up against the NBA playoffs, NHL finals, or NHL, you know, Stanley Cup playoffs, and potentially March Madness at the beginning, and March Madness doesn't end until mid-April, and I think it would just be this logjam, and we're already starting to see that happen in September with all these leagues restarting, and, you know, there's been some college football games already moved in the state of Kentucky because of the Derby now being scheduled, so I think that's part of the hesitation. Another part of the hesitation is just tradition. I mean, it's it would be so radically different to have spring football. And one of the major concerns is if you end the season in June and then go right into your summer workout and then go right, it would go right into the next fall season of 2021. That's potentially like 15 months of really hard impact heavy workouts for these athletes. And that might just not be safe in terms of injury prevention. Cause you know, you look at the amount of injuries that, teams kind of get and how beat up they are by November, December, and it's a lot. And yeah. if you don't give them that time in the winter when they can kind of take a step back and recover, you might be potentially putting your athletes at risk for some blown ACLs and a lot of other injuries that could be prevented. Yeah, my my uncles who played Division three football always like to joke that by the end of the season, you know, their their fingers are so bruised and, you know, quote, quote, unquote, broken that there's a lot less holding in in the games in early November than there are in September, but sorry, just I believe it. sorry, but just one, one more question as, as we talk about mm-hmm. you know the following season just just as a follow up, uh, the Ivy League and the NESCAC where, where I went to college at Wesleyan, their model is you know they start football games the third weekend of uh, September and they kind of push the season back. Mm-hmm. We're, we're seeing that in the NBA talk about okay they're they're playing now with their bubble they'll start the the next season in December. It does seem like this is a two-season issue if there's any type of delay in the season now. Couldn't they theoretically – I understand things are are set in stone, but this is obviously extenuating circumstances. It doesn't seem like they – it would be that huge of an issue to kind of push back the season to have more of like the Ivy League uh, start date and kind of maybe even push the college football bowl games and championship games kind of more into uh, deeper in January. Is is that kind of being discussed – at all of maybe this is just a chance to to change kind of just the the calendar year of college football instead of having week zero games in the last week of August, kind of pushing the season back? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I believe some executives at the Big 12 have floated the idea of pushing back the national championship one week, and I think that would actually just make it the same Monday as it was this year because there was a really weird, like, 10-day lag time between the semifinals and the final, but... That's only one week, and I guess if you look at what a lot of universities are doing in terms of just their students and their plans, like Notre Dame, South Carolina, Michigan just announced it today, they're going to try to come back early and maybe send people home at Thanksgiving, and that's because of flu season and the weather gets colder. So the only risk in moving football later is that you run into that. And the thing is, we just don't know how differently coronavirus is going to behave when it does get colder again, because I don't think there's been... As, you know, the surges in the U.S. are showing that warm weather might not necessarily be playing into it. Yeah, for sure. But, yeah, and I think there's just a lot of concern about that, especially as you get into the holidays and people start traveling. Like, even if it's not the college athletes, the people that are in their bubbles might be. Mm-hmm. So it's just, there's so many problems from every angle. <laughs> and I yeah. think, you know, it's just determining which problems you're willing to deal with and willing to, you know, problem solve because, there's going to be weird modifications in every sense, every sport for this year and probably for the next few years. For sure. Yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm not envious of anyone who is in the decision making uh, positions for this (laughs) because, you know, when I was in college and I'm sure when you're in the same uh, situation, each school has like the student handbook of all the rules and regulations of it's a hundred ish page document that's just for the normal school year. And now for the, for, for the COVID year, they basically need to rewrite that whole, 
hundred plus page protocol. You know, we saw the NBA, I think it was 113 pages just for like 400 people in one location in Orlando when half of them leave in six weeks anyway, that I I just can't imagine how much uh, pressure these, these college administrators feels, but uh, no, it's, it's pretty nuts, especially if you consider that the NBA's guys went as granular as you can't play doubles in ping pong. Like, yeah. Can you imagine what colleges would have to say that athletes can and can't do given, you know, the environment of dorms? Oh, yeah. It's it's definitely going to be really interesting to see, you know, as, as you mentioned, the it's quite like the Notre Dame model seems like the most popular one now of starting the school year earlier and ending on-campus instruction by November instead of having everyone come back to campus, do online final exams. We'll see how that works uh, with, will athletes have to have to stay on campus as they traditionally do and everything, but uh, we'll definitely have to see how it all shakes out. Yeah, and you know, I think that actually could set up a really lonely period of time for these athletes. Um, I I was a summer in college and Mm -hmm. we had a winter season, so there was a couple weeks in the holidays or right after Christmas and before the second semester started when it was really just athletes on campus. Yep, and, I was in the same you know, it's cold, it's kind of miserable. And if you're there for even longer, so going the entire month of December and into it when everyone else is maybe taking their finals at home and you're on campus, like, Oh, that just sounds like a terrible college experience. Yeah. I was, I was in the same boat as a college basketball player at Wesleyan. Some, for whatever reason, the school got away with giving us a six week spring break or six week winter break. And so mm-hmm. when we came back December 27th, classes wouldn't resume till January 24th. And it was just us and all the winter athletes. And it was definitely lonely at times. And it was also like by the time classes started again, you were like, you were so adjusted to the new normal. It almost felt weird to have everyone else back on campus. Yeah, definitely. And like, you've never been more excited to learn. You're like, just give me something to do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I appreciate all the time. Uh, just just for any listeners out there, can, can you kind of... Uh, give a plug or a pitch for just like this, the, the, the stuff that uh, you're working on at the wall street journal and just, and just where to find you. Um, yeah. So if you follow me on Twitter, I tweet most of my work there and general observations about college football and COVID right now. Um, uh-huh. But I'm at Lane Higgins 17. Um, otherwise I think if you have the wall street journal app and you are a subscriber, you can follow writer. So if you just search for a college football article, there should be a little plus sign next to my, la- my name where the byline is, and then you can get a notification every time I write. But I think it's really just my mom that has that turned on, so <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> all right. All right, Lane. Really appreciate all the time. Uh, best of luck going forward, uh, reporting everything going on in the world of college athletics. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Coming up after the break is my discussion from earlier today with my younger brother, Michael about the King of Staten Island. Joining me now on the podcast is the chief movie critic for The Double Double, also known as my younger brother, Michael. He was on the podcast this past winter to help me break down Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker, and now he is back. Uh, with me to talk about the movie that everyone is talking about this spring, The King of Staten Island. It is the new Judd Apatow movie starring Pete Davidson. We watched it this weekend uh, together. We rented it on Amazon Prime. And now to join me to talk about it is my younger brother, Michael. Michael, what's going on? What's up, David? Always happy, elated, and thrilled to be a member of the Double Double. And I just want to thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, b- before we get going, I just want to congratulate you. You've announced that you'll be attending Vassar College in the fall. It's an awesome liberal arts school. We're all super proud of you and really excited just to see what you do and accomplish as a Vassar Brewer. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It was kind of a long deliberation process, but I'm really happy to be a Brewer. I'm really happy to get to work with Coach Me and the rest of his staff, and I'm you know hopeful that we'll have a season and we'll have school somewhat traditionally. Very, very well put. So jumping right into this, as I mentioned, the star of the movie is Pete Davidson. He is the youngest or one of the youngest cast members in the history of Saturday Night Live. He was announced and signed to be on the cast at 20 years old, and now I think he is 26. So he's been on the show for a while now. When was the first time you learned about Pete Davidson? Because I know Fasser knows this. You're a pretty big comedy guy. 
So Pete Davidson, I found out a little bit when he hit the mainstream with SNL. Uh, I think a little bit like everybody when I started to see him pop up more on weekend updates. Uh, started seeing some more of his one-on-one interviews, you know, very simple things, giving interviews about himself. Then, like everybody, I think he started to explode into the nat- national uh, mindset when he was started dating Ariana Grande. Uh, one of the craziest twists of 2019, in my opinion. Um, but I thought... I always liked Davidson. He's not for everybody. You know, he's also very big into the roast comedy uh, comedy central scene. And he really likes doing a lot of that stuff. So, and he leans into a lot of the darker jokes, some of the dark... And I don't know if your audience knows, but his father was a firefighter in 9-11 and he died uh, very tragically. And he makes a lot of jokes about that. He leans into a lot of some of the darker parts of his life. You know, I, I saw his uh, Netflix special. He leaned into a lot of the moments about Ariana Grande. He knows she's way more beautiful, way more successful, and way more powerful than he is and makes jokes about it. So he very much leans into this pathetic loser vibe he sort of gives off, and he owns it. Yeah, I I think that's a really interesting point that you said that about. He has a unique style of comedy. It's very self-deprecating, and it can get very dark. And what's interesting about Pete Davidson is that he's a tremendous stand-up comedian, but one of the ways that he has struggled during his time at Saturday Night Live is that he's not a great sketch comedian. And Saturday Night Live is a sketch show. And so he's not a guy who can play a bunch of different characters and do a bunch of impressions. They, re- they use him really well as they put him on Weekend Update to talk about something for four or five minutes. And it's su- usually super funny. But in the sketches he's in, he's usually playing himself. What were your thoughts when you first heard about that he was going to be starring as an actor in a major motion picture when, as we saw on Saturday Night Live, he's not, you know, a traditional great actor. You know, the funny thing is I actually didn't see the news about the King of Staten Island. I just saw the trailer play before one of my YouTube videos, and it was like one of those things where it was like the first 10 seconds were unskippable, so I watched it, and then it became one of those things where the two-and-a-half-minute trailer, I actually sat and watched the whole thing, and... I think, and something I want to talk to a little bit later, one thing that makes the movie so successful, I thought he was great. I thought he, but I think it's also because, I think you mentioned that Apatow really wrote this movie with him in mind. And I think he really just, again, like I said, he leans into who he is. He leans into all his faults in his comedy. I think this movie is almost a dramedy in that it's a drama and a comedy that leans into exactly what Davidson's strengths are, self-deprecating. He knows he's a loser. He knows all this, and he's, he's here for the ride with it. So I thought he was fantastic. Yeah, so as we get into talk about the movie, this is the official spoiler alert. If you haven't seen the movie yet, pause the podcast because we're going to talk about uh, events of the movie and kind of how it all shakes out. So this is the official spoiler alert, uh, so you could pause the podcast here. But for those who are still listening to us who have seen the movie or don't care about the spoilers, it's it's an impressive movie in that it's a true, as you mentioned, dramedy, the way Judd Apatow... Uh, has his movies written is that he tells the the comedians he's working with is write a serious movie and then we'll make it funny because you're funny and we're and and I'm funny so we'll make it funny but all good comedies are in drama and that was the most impressive part about this movie was that it really was it felt like a drama with some great one-liner or funny scenes in there yeah absolutely so again as we're going to talk about more of the specifics like I said, Davidson's a loser. They start on a very serious note. Davidson basically almost tries to kill himself in the first scene. He's driving on the highway, and he closes his eyes and tries to speed up. But at the last second, he swerves and decides not to go through with it. Like they, We start on a very serious, dark note talking when dealing with Davidson's mental health. And then later the next scene, his sister's like, don't hit on my friend. And he says something like, I told her she she looked good in her pants. I didn't know I was going to get me tooed about it. Like, And so I thought that like, exactly what you said. Like, There was these very serious, heavy moments that are lightened up by these very funny, lighthearted uh, moments. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a great point because the movie is semi-autobiographical. It is very loosely based off of Davidson's whole life, which is that his he plays a character named Scott Carlin in the movie. His father in real life name was Scott, so, he's, so his character name is Scott, inspired by that. His father in the movie died, they say, who died in a fire. He was a firefighter. They never say 9-11, kind of assuming that if you're tuning into the movie, you kind of know Pete Davidson's backstory and know that. They don't need to explicitly say it because then the movie becomes a 9-11 movie and not a movie about Pete Davidson's character and Scott. And as you mentioned, Mike, this 
he, as in real life, Pete Davidson has mental health challenges, and they don't shy away from that at all in the movie of the very first scene. It's a very jarring opening to a movie of he's driving on the Staten Island Expressway, a road that we've both been on as native New Yorkers, and he closed his eyes, and he's still driving, and he opens them just in the next time to swerve out from a traffic jam. And as he is driving away from the scene, he's saying sorry to himself and puts on his seatbelt. Like, he was really daring in that moment to to start off that way of being so open. And, hey, I'm a guy who has some of these mental health issues. And he has said in his media tour about this that that was something he used to do. Yeah, so I honestly, I just really respect Davidson. I know it's not easy, especially in some of the climate we in the climate we live in, how hard it is to talk about your mental health issues, things going on with yourself. And so I just really applaud him for not shying away. This again, like you said, like this does this isn't going to hide from some of the tougher aspects of life. Like this is a feel. I think it's very much a feel good movie, and we'll get to that later on. But it does it's not all positive. It's not just a rocky like starts low and ends as the champion. It's not. Um, Mr. Rogers after school special like they really talked about some of the darker aspects of life and I thought another really great scene was when he's basically in a promiscuous relationship with uh, the character's name is Kelsey played by Belle Powley he you know they have relations and he gets up to go and she's like do you, do you ever want to date more than this and he basically says like you know I'm really sorry but like you basically deserve somebody better I, I'm, I do crazy things I do impulsive things you, you deserve to be with somebody better. And to me, that really much captures how people with mental health issues feel, right? Very low self-esteem, low confidence. It's, he, he's not saying like, oh, I'm going to kill myself. He's saying like, you just deserve somebody better. He's, it's his subtle cry for help. And they just don't, sh- they start with these very serious moments. And kind of as, as you talked about in, in the series that continues, is that one of the, the issues I had with the movie about halfway through, which is that one of the main plot points is that his mother, played by Marissa Tomei, starts dating another firefighter, the first person she's dated since her husband had passed away in that fire. And it's kind of about moving on from these tr- uh, terrible traumas in one's life. And they, they show Marissa Tomei is finally getting the ability to move on after 17 years. And Davidson's character, Scott, is still really struggling with that and kind of lashes out in a way or acts out uh, after Marissa Tomei starts dating uh, her new boyfriend named Ray, played by the comedian Bill Burr. And that was kind of really interesting to see because the Marissa Tomei story could have been a movie in its own about a widow moving on after all these years and finding love again. That that could have been a really great movie of just Marissa Tomei and Bill Burr. Like you want, I wanted more of that relationship, but the movie was about Scott and how he was reacting to it all and he did and he wasn't reacting well. He continues to smoke and do a lot of drugs. He tries to give a tattoo to a 10-year-old which kind of brought his mom and and the guy Ray together. Uh he wants to open a a tattoo restaurant and you know no one will, will let him do that. He's he's not a great tattoo artist and his life is kind of spiraling out of control. He has no direction. So it's all about how he's able to confront and move on and it starts with uh hanging out more with these firefighters. Yeah, I also just want to add one more thing. Another aspect is that his sister, um, played by Judd Apatow's daughter, Maude, um, she's also a little bit, not a perfect child, but she's doing way better than he is. She's younger. She's going to college. He's never been to college. I think they imply he dropped out of high school even. He never graduated from high school. And he, she's going to college, and she's working, and she's trying to get things done. So... She's not the Ivy League student, but she has her life together. She has direction. She has a plan. And it, it makes Davidson feel even more hopeless. And that's when Bill Burr's character, Ray, really tries to take him under his wing a little bit to try to make the relationship go smoothly. And like the host of the Double Double just pointed out here, he really lashes out. And there's a scene where he's literally joking about how his father his father died in a fire and none of the firefighters have a comeback for that one, do they? Because they're at a baseball game and they're all trying to tell him, Oh, you can be a firefighter. It's great. You know, what's the risk? And he's like, what about that day you never come home? What about the day you leave your family? And he just, because he's being defensive, he's protective of his mom. His mom feels like, he feels like his mom's the only person who's been there for him. And he doesn't want to think about the idea of being like his dad because he never got to be like his, he never actually got to know his dad super well. Yeah. So I, I think that's a great point. And kind of it all, the, 
the climax of the first hour of the movie is that Scott's mom kicks him out of the house and he has nowhere to go. His his uh, on off girlfriend, you know, kicks him out too and won't hang out with him. He tries. He's the lookout on a drug uh, robbery gone wrong at a pharmacy. His friends are going to jail. His three loser friends are all going to jail. And Davidson's on his own. He has nowhere to go. So he goes to the firehouse and basically begs to for a place to stay and to work by cleaning the toilets and cleaning the truck and everything. And that was kind of the start of him rebuilding his life in a way. Or not, not rebuilding, but building a new life past the trauma of his father passing away. Yeah, and I also want to say I think his friends uh, did an incredible job. I think if you're from New York, this movie is a little bit of a must-watch just for some of the Staten Island and New York in general jokes. One hundred percent. Like I, th- I highly recommend everybody who listens watching it. But if you're especially if you're New York based, you have to kind of tune in to me. And to me, like this, the scene that captures it all is like my brother just said: they're all burnouts, they're all heavy drug users, losers with no direction. They're harassing an eight-year-old about giving him a tattoo. Right? They're all bad kids. And they're selling drugs to a kid, and the kid comes to the window, and he goes, like, oh, aren't you Ricky's younger brother? Like, Ricky always used to pick on me in high school. I'm going to charge you for six Oxycontins, and I'm only going to give you four. And, like, it captures this Staten Island S of, like, rock-bottom loser and literally holding on to a grudge from high school. It's, it's like, dude, move on with your life. Yeah, it, and, and the accents are great. Uh... The the girl who plays or the young woman who plays Pete's on and off girlfriend has an incredible stand on accent. Sounds like she lived there her whole life. She's British, and that just kind of feeds into it. Feels a very authentic New York uh, City movie. And going back to to the plot, we see Scott evolving and growing. He goes with with the group to an actual fire, but the movie doesn't really end like he's found anything it seems like it's more like he's just kind of accepted what has happened to him that his father's not with him and kind of how to move on where ray and his mom are back together it seems like and the movie ends with ray giving scott a ride down to the Staten island ferry to uh catch up with kelsey to join her on the trip to her civil service exam and the movie kind of ends with pete in Manhattan and kind of he left Staten Island and and maybe it's similar to how he got SNL and now he's off the island and exploring his his new life but the movie doesn't end by making him a hero in any way yeah exactly and that's what I was alluding to of it's a feel-good movie because he's starting to get his life together but it's not an after-school special where everything's solved I think very much the message of the movie is accepting your demons and trying to move on not necessarily ignoring them or that they can be a part of you because like my brother just said, the way it ends is he basically goes to Kelsey and in stark contrast to how the movie started where he says, you deserve somebody better. You know, you, you don't want to be with somebody like me. He says, I love you. I've loved you for a really long time. That's the reason I said all that. The reason I said all that stuff is because I have so many issues and I just, I don't know how, to, I don't want you to think I'm a jerk and I don't want to ever lose you. So I just hope we stay together and Again, like you said, he's not—he's not a millionaire. They don't run off somewhere. It's not Goodwill Hunt. It's a little bit like Goodwill Hunting, actually, to me, where like Will goes off finding the girl. It's and accepting himself. It's a little bit like that. He accepts himself, even if things aren't totally solved yet. For sure. And so, like any movie, it's a two and a half hour. It's or not two and a half. It's about two hours and fifteen minutes. Just like with any movie, you're not going to love every single second. There's very, very few movies like that. Did you have any just issues with the movie? In, in any way from just the plot, how it was filmed. The funny thing is, I actually, I, I'm not saying it's a perfect movie. It's not Citizen Kane or The Godfather, you know, any, whatever masterpiece you want to think of. But I actually have very few complaints. I think the casting all was really good. I think it helps that Marissa Tomei is, first of all, fantastic. I think she's incredible. I hope she gets even more work because I've, I've loved her in Spider-Man. I loved her in this. Now, I, I've loved Marissa Tomei and everything I've seen her in. I think it helps because I don't think Burr is also a particularly strong actor, but I think he very much is playing himself, like quick, quick temper, kind of a hothead, but ultimately a good guy who's trying to do his best, trying to do the best by his kids. And again, Davidson, like we've covered sort of at length, uh, very much playing himself in this movie. So I think that really helps. 
And I think it actually makes a lot of sense. I, I think the, and the cat, like I said, I've said that the supporting cast with his friends was really good. So while it's not the best movie ever, I actually have very few complaints about it. I thought it was a very like beginning to end, like a strong B plus movie, like very few complaints. Yeah. I think with most movies that are made now, the, the biggest issue with The King of Staten Island was that it was about 15 minutes to 20 minutes too long. It dragged a little bit in the middle. And part of it is maybe just because Davidson comes from the SNL of writing singular scenes, there were some scenes in there that were kind of not really out of place, but just so shocking and so good that that one scene, it was kind of a letdown going to the next scene. There was times where the movie felt a little disjointed, especially in the middle, trying to progress the plot from point A to point B to point C. But overall, I agree with you for basically like an at-home movie experience. It's a very solid movie. You'll definitely laugh, but you'll also feel stuff as uh, Pete Davidson is confronting his own traumas in his own life while he portrays this character of Scott in the movie. You're a big comedy guy. We're always reciting one-liners here. We that you you mentioned the the Me Too line, which which got a big laugh. What were some other lines in this movie that really jumped out? My favorite was when Davidson and Bill Burr's character Ray are having a fight in an argument. And it turned out that Bill Burr in his past was was a bit of a gambler. And I guess Dave said something about, like, what are you going to learn to stop betting on the Jets? And Bill Burr's like, the Jets are coming back. and But because everyone knows that the Jets are never coming back. But so what were some of your other lines that you, you know, chuckle to yourself when, when you hear it or, or you're repeating now? Yeah, so I would say from a funny perspective, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, Ray Bishop is Burr's character when he takes uh, Scott to the game. They're trying to convince him to be a firefighter. And like I said, there's this line where he goes basically, oh, except for my dad who burned out, like who burnt, who died in the burning building. Like none of you have an answer for that, do you? And then like so the player gets a hit at the game and he goes like, he starts going blizzard like, oh, good job, good job, going crazy. Like he's going crazy. And it was really Davidson's delivery of it that I thought was just fantastic. And again, totally up his alley of jokes he's made before. And I think another great one, it's in the trailer, so to me this speaks to how much I love it, is he's taking uh, Burr's, Bill Burr's kids, Ray, again, Ray Bishop, kid to school, kids to school, and he drops off the younger daughter, and the teacher's very taken aback. It's this guy she's never seen, and is, you know goes to the daughter like, hey, are you okay? Do you need help? You can tell me anything. And she's like, no, he's, it's okay. He's a new friend. And he looks right back at her and goes like, oh, I trained her in the car. She's not going to break. And I, like, I, I, literally t- I still think that that's so funny. And, but then I would say the one serious line I really liked, uh, Davidson goes and finds Bur- uh, Bill Burr's ex-wife in the movie and has like an hour-long conversation where he hears everything bad about him, the gambling thing, the bad husband from the ex-wife, and tells his mom, and that forces a little the separation where they take Marissa Tomei and Bill Burr take a break in the movie. And then when Davidson goes back to the firehouse, Burr set, Bill Burr basically says... Why would you do that? You like you went to the person to get the, you could get the worst sixty minute report out of, and then you told your mom. Did you ever think about coming down here and asking these guys what you what they think of me? And he's you know David's like oh, I'm sorry. And Mister goes like No, you're not sorry. If you if you were sorry, you wouldn't have done it. You knew what you were doing. And he said like So am I supposed to feel bad for you now that you you're doing this pathetic little puppy dog routine? And I just thought it was a very it's again like we talked about like the very serious moments interspersed with comedy. For sure, and it kind of speaks to the larger. Uh theme of perspective and where you get your information from and kind of trying to learn from about a person or just an issue trying to try to learn from as many people as possible because if you just get the news from one person or from one one source you could be incredibly clouded by uh your, your judgment could be very clouded by what you hear from, from that one person i think most interestingly as as we wrap up here with with this last topic Davidson's been on SNL for six years. He's kind of joked the whole time that he's been on the show that he's going to get fired and that he's out of place because he's, as, as we said before, he's not a sketch comedian and, it's, and that's a sketch comedy show. What do you think this will lead to for Davidson going forward? Judd Apatow has had a great track record of his self-appointed people, whether it's Seth Rogen, Jason Segel, James Franco, people who he's put movies out, you know, Bill Hader, Amy Schumer. Where do you think this is going to lead for Davidson next in his career? Because he's still very young and has a lot of talent. You know, that's a very good question because Davidson, it's almost funny because he's, I think he's, 
a little bit of a specialist in what he does, but he also has now dipped his toe in a lot of different waters. He, like I say he's done a lot of the comedy roast central battles and roasts of different celebrities. He's been on SNL. This is now a very serious movie. I think he has a lot of potential. I worry he falls a little bit too much into the Seth Rogen one too much of a one trick pony where Rogan was obviously sort of like the I'm the fat stoner vibe that he's now that's sort of been his I think his role in Hollywood for as long as I've been alive that's all I've ever seen him in so I'm a little bit worried that he he only plays the degenerate loser but if that honestly sometimes people make make a living out of doing things and so if that's what he wants and to get out of life is to be sort of like the pathetic friend and he's okay with that then I think he has a ton of potential I think he has a high floor I'm not sure what his ceiling is to put it into a more sports oriented term interesting interesting I think he's going to get his own show. Hmm. I think someone, whether it's a traditional news, uh, a traditional TV channel, NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, will give him his own show. I could also see him going to HBO, going to Netflix, and doing an Aziz Ansari type show, someone super, super talented. Let him write his own show because Davison is incredibly talented. I think he's a good writer. And... I think he's going to come out in the next couple of years with a scripted 10-episode a season or 8-episode-a-season TV show that I think is going to be really, really good the way that we saw Bill Hader win multiple Emmys for Barry on HBO, one of the best shows on TV where he wrote, directed, and starred in almost every episode. Mm-hmm. I, I think we could see something similar for Davis. Not, not saying he's as talented as Bill Hader because Bill Hader is one of the most talented guys working in comedy today but Davidson has a lot of talent he's super young and he's at a point of his career where he can really go out and take a chance with Netflix off off the backs uh, of the success of the King of Staten Islands so Mike really appreciate you uh, coming out of your room uh, and pausing the PlayStation to come uh, do this podcast with me today uh, I'm looking forward to maybe having you back on later this summer as, as we break down maybe another summer blockbuster that comes out as it doesn't seem like the movie theaters are going to be open anytime soon. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. I know there's some talk of The Mandalorian on the horizon. We might have to review some of that, but no spoilers here on the Double Double, so we'll keep you posted. I, again, thank you for having me, and I love I love talking shop with you. Thanks, Mike. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, and you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back later this week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.